Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Philip Elliott, a Washington correspondent for Time, a seasoned veteran Washington reporter, and someone who previously has visited with us. He's our eyes and ears inside the West Wing. Before joining Time, Phil spent a decade covering politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House for the Associated Press. Today, we're going to start talking about the summit with North Korea, but we'll touch on several other timely national and international topics. As we're recording this, the President Trump is on his way back from Singapore, uh, probably in the air as we speak. Uh, I think everybody would agree that the summit that we saw last night on American television and uh, was uh, on Tuesday in in Singapore um, was historic in the fact that the two people met and were in the same place together. Uh, but beyond that, uh, was it really? Well, it's worth remembering that this is the first American president to meet with the leader of the North Ever, This has been a, a privilege, a sign of respect, um, an affirmation, a validation of the North Korean regime. Um, it has been something that Kim, his father, his grandfather, all desperately sought as a sign of um, validation, that they were, in fact, on the same level as the United States. American leaders, to this point up until yesterday, had refused that honor and dignity to the North. Um, we do not have diplomatic relations with North Korea, and yet there was the U.S. flag and the flag of the North standing side by side as the two leaders uh, met. And they did make history. This is You cannot discount the importance of what we saw last night, that for better, all history is not good. President Trump is going to see run, fa- run into that face-to-face when he gets back to the United States. He is wheels up. He's on his way to Guam. He's going to refuel there. Um, here in Washington, the first few hours of daylight here um, indicate that the president will land back here in the United States to not the rousing welcome that he may think he deserves. Um, there is some deep skepticism about what just happened. Um, several of his allies on the Hill, uh, including Lindsey Graham, who's a powerful member of the Armed Services Committee and a frequent golf partner of the president, it w- was, was very much um, coming to the table with a pitcher of ice water on this, saying that words alone don't make peace, that there are a lot of holes, as we understand it at this point, uh, in the agreement that was signed by the two leaders. For instance, what, how are we defining denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula? What are the mechanisms for it? So the President Trump said we're going to stop doing joint military exercises with South Korea. That should make the South very nervous because those military exercises prepare a, a joint U.S.-South Korean force for any potential belligerence from the North. Uh, I talked to one person at the Pentagon on my way into work today who said, this is just tying one arm behind our back. These exercises are not just for symbolic purposes. It is a way to train U.S. military personnel for the potential invasion from the north. Keeping in mind, Seoul is only about 25 miles from the DMZ. That's not a lot of time to mobilize anyone if the north decides to start rolling through the DMZ, or worse yet, start firing nukes um, in, into the sky, that there there is no anti, as, as much as we're good at shooting intercontinental ballistic missiles down, it's more difficult in the short term, and there is no significant missile shield uh, that can protect Seoul. It's one thing to use um, what, what we call the Iron Dome in Jerusalem to shoot down these missiles. Um, it, it's another to, th- those are relatively simple compared to what the North has shown us, um, their ability to be developed. And 
because it is such a secretive place, we have no idea of knowing what they've developed that they've not told us about. And during the talks last night, my understanding, um, based on what officials are telling reporters at this point before the president got off the ground, is we did not get a whole um, inventory of what the North has. So we don't even know what we would be inspecting if we were to inspect. But because right. there's no inspection provision in this, right. uh, we don't have to really worry about it. The other, the other piece of this is one that you can't really discount when talking about this president, is he really likes to think of himself as a, a member of the American scientific royalty. Uh, his, his uncle, who was an MIT professor, helped develop the first x-rays, was a very important scientist um, in the early Cold War years. And he often likes to go back and say, well, my uncle told me. Well, my uncle told me. Well, that wow. intelligence from his uncle in the, the 40s and 50s, while valid and important in shaping the president's worldview, is not the most oper- um You can't really operate a, an American foreign policy in the year 2018 based on what a Cold War uncle from MIT told you in the 50s. But that is the president tends to value people he knows whose opinions and views he's already predisposed to respect, if not agree with, as opposed to the State Department eggheads, whom he has very little use for and has not done a lot uh, to um, bring to fill out the ranks of his diplomatic corps. There's also a time factor here. Uh, The U.S. is going to stop the war games with South Korea that's a certainty from what I understand. The denuclearization of North Korea, uh, it, there is no timetable for that. The words were quickly or soon, uh, but they were uh, euphemistic words like that that really have uh, no literal meaning. I guess there was a, an agreement to blow up one missile launch site, which may not even uh, be necessary for them anymore. So uh, uh, what did we get? That is that is the part that is incredibly unclear. Um, on, on a political level, the president got his photo op. He got several moments where he emerged and looked absolutely presidential. The, the stagecraft of this was so well orchestrated to, to raise him up to be the leader of the free world. The problem was in doing so, he also elevated Kim to that same plane. It was a well-produced TV show. It was. And the the president thinks of these things as a T as he likes scripting these storylines. Got it. But there, there are people inside the administration and there are many who are critics. um, Those who are critical of this plan note that this is typically what would have ended years of diplomatic wrangling to make sure both of them had an exact script and an agreement that was pre pre that everyone had signed off on had been perfectly vetted had the technical experts um go through line by line um and make sure that there there was no way for anyone to cheat on it um the way for it to be enforced penalties for ignoring it instead we, we sent the president who is a master of telling us stories but he's not a master of nuclear armament. I mean, this is just not his. Um, it's not. It's not his strong suit. And the fact that he was in the meeting with Kim, where apparently they decided to do this once and for all, um, there was no one else from the American side in there other than a translator. And whose there decision was that? Was that Trump's decision? Do you know? I, I Trump signed off on it. I don't know if he was the one who. Okay. Um, brought that who had that idea in the first place, but it's tough. I mean, I've been following the, the president now for three years, um, and it's more than that now. Goodness, uh, since his campaign started, well, three years ago, and it's you. You have to, you can't. All presidents come to the job, or all presidential candidates come to the job, with a confidence in their own ability. What we see from President Trump is a a, a magnitude greater than even the most arrogant moments of his predecessors. 
that he really thinks that through sheer force of his magnetism, he can convince people to do what he wants. It, it, it really is, in the words of a lot of people, a lot of my um, wise men at the State Department, wise women as well, um, just sheer irresponsibility. That he went into this meeting with Kim. There were only the translators there. There was no one taking notes. So you're going to go by the president's memory to tell his his national security team what he just agreed to and what Kim agreed to. Um, well, let me just break it, it, that's it. just yeah. Let me just break this down in, in crass language that you, as a journalist, probably wouldn't use. But we've got two world stage liars sitting in a room together with nobody but themselves and nobody as a countercheck to any of this. That, that is, that is, that is a not unfair assessment of what is, what just happened here. And it's why a lot of people at state at DOD, um, the director of national intelligence, CIA, they all wanted to have their person in the room, not necessarily, because they don't trust the president or they think the president will get this wrong, although this is an incredibly complicated talk being done through translators. And I don't know much about Kim's language skills, but the president is very bad at having the patience to listen through translators. He, he just doesn't like it. He thinks everyone should, if they're meeting with him, they should speak English. Right. Um, it, it is it is just how he does it. It's why he has great impatience with foreign leaders who come and insist on doing things in their native language when <clears throat> he suspects they could do it in English if they really wanted to. Um, the problem here is also, and this is where a lot of like the public diplomacy team at the State Department worries, that there is no telling what Kim is going to say the president said, that North Koreans are some of the best propagandists on the planet. They really did pick up where the Soviets left off in terms of just using using America's own words against it. That there's this suspicion that because no one from team is there, no one's in the room to check, that what is to say that Kim didn't have a microphone on him and take the whole thing? Right. That then he's going to selectively edit and broadcast to his people. Um, and in some cases, it's not going to take a lot of... Um, tricky editing, the president of the United States called him a fine man, said it's an honor to meet him, uh, really said he's a great leader. Like all of this stuff feeds into what Kim wants his people to believe or what Kim wants to convince his people is necessary for their survival in a brutal regime where people are starved to death. Uh, it's a human rights disaster. He is just a brutal individual i mean he poisoned he poisoned family members his own brother he shot an anti-aircraft missile at someone who wasn't sufficiently he didn't have a sufficiently good attitude for him like this guy is this isn't uncle fluffy this is a brutal regime led by an authoritarian dictator and the president was so nice and going over above and beyond what we've seen any american diplomat do before um, I mean, famously, Bill Clinton went over um, to rescue uh, journalists who were held captive there in 2009, 2010. My memory is uh, not perfect there. That's about but it, right. It, Bill, Bill Clinton had just this blank look on his face so as not to seem to be enjoying the meeting so that the image would convey at best neutrality um, so that it couldn't be used against the United States. And the president's all smiles and thumbs up in this meeting. And all of this is happening at the same time he's in an open feud with the G7 leaders who are some of our strongest allies right. on the planet, and who have been for decades strong American allies and have really defended us at moments where other partners may have been less robust in their enthusiasm for what was coming out of Washington. And, and I want to get to that in a moment, but let's let's wrap up the, the Korean summit just just mm -hmm. a, a second on a couple of angles, you know, to to get even if let's say North Korea uh, promised something, uh, the denuclearization uh, to get any action out of North Korea 
it seems to me as a layperson, give me your perspective, that we would as a country have had to sell our soul to China because China is really the only one that can enforce anything with North Korea. Is that correct? That is that is a that is correct. They they're I'm not sure how much China is going to be on our side on this though. Um, at this very hour, the Senate is considering the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the statement of U.S. Um, security policy. It's a big deal um, in, that very few people pay attention to, but it's a statement of our national security strategy that Congress signs off on, and it's basically the strategic document for the Department of Defense and uh, its, ally, its affiliated agencies. In that Many senators, including those from the Republican from the Republican Party, the president's own party, are enshrining in that document a rejection of a sweetheart exemption that the president put in place for a Chinese telecom company. This telecom company is called ZTE and was found to be running afoul of U.S. sanctions. The president stepped in and says, "No, we're going to waive those. We're going to make it okay." We're going, to, we're going to fine you a lot of money because in the president's mind, it's a zero-sum game. If you had money and now we have money, we win. Right. The problem is this telecom company has been identified at, by the intelligence community of the United States as a spy agency, that they're using their telecom equipment to basically eavesdrop on us. They also were trading illegally with Iran. They were trading illegally with uh, North Korea. The president wants, wanted to get China on board on this talk, so he 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 gave them he gave them a freebie on ZTE. The Senate right now is trying to undo the president's ability to do that, which is only confusing uh, U.S. Senate Senate um, relations even worse. That it, it really at this point, Xi is not really all that happy with what the United States is doing. He's still impressed with the president as a strong leader. Um, they they do have a legit legitimately warm um, rapport among them but foreign policy can start a person to person but it has to then go government to government and that is that is not what we're seeing and really the the state department the white house the senate the intelligence community are not speaking with one voice at this moment on the zte issue which leads me to ask what what value China will bring to this right. and what what might Japan do because really what we just saw in Singapore should make uh, Shinzo Abe whose government is in trouble at home in a very big way very nervous about his alliance with not just the United States but especially President Trump you'll recall during the transition yes. that's that period between uh, the inauguration and between election day and the inauguration, Prime Minister Abe was there at Trump Tower, knocking on the door, being like, "I want to get in here. We got to get. We got to be on the same page." Abe was at Mar-a-Lago the night of the uh, the, the, the the missile strikes. Um, that Abe really wanted a strong relationship with this U.S. president, and in order to survive his own domestic crisis at home. What we just saw from President Trump really should make Prime Minister Abe and the voters in Japan uh, who rely on U.S. military protection should make them very nervous. So really, what if, if we take this to an extreme, perhaps what we saw last night was the end of the Abe administration because the president was looking for a photo op um, with, with the North Koreans. Speaking of politics, as we're uh, on that topic, how does the Korean summit, the North Korean summit in Singapore, how does it play out in the midterms? Was this a political chess move that was timed by President Trump, or does the American public give a rat's rear end about all of this? <laughs> No, it, it's interesting. Let, let's take that in two pieces. Okay. Um, the president doesn't get, really care uh, two rat two rats heinies about the midterms. He he has not been able to focus on this. He doesn't. He, he this is not really something he 
focuses on. He, okay. he it's all about him. Gotcha. Um, he says that he wants Republicans to keep control of the House and the Senate, but it's not because he wants th- them to succeed. It's because he's afraid of uh, subpoena power if the Democrats take over uh, and get the majority, end up with chairmanships. They can then subpoena, and then all who knows what the the next two years right. of um, the document shuffle going up and down Pennsylvania Avenue uh, looks like. The most most threatening people close to the president tell me are um, House Financial Services. That committee, the chairman of that committee, can bring a vote to its members to release any Americans' tax returns. That is the most challenging um, threat to this president. And they've done this before during the IRS quote unquote scandal, when all of these nonprofit groups, um, all these tea party groups right. were applying for nonprofit status, house financial services released uh, tax returns of several IRS employees, including uh, the, the director of that division. Um, it, there is precedent for this. It can be done even if they're under audit, which the president has fought very strongly to keep his tax returns private, uh, contrary to all precedent, um, that's a real threat for him. The second part of this is what what this may mean for the midterms in terms of voters' minds. You know, it's it's the, the voters elected Donald Trump to shake up the status quo. You cannot deny that there is a giant middle finger that voters sent. Absolutely. Uh, that... And the Trump campaign this morning is really trying to keep building on that. Uh, A statement from the campaign, um, a very subtle one at that, uh, reads that history will demonstrate that the historic summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and the initial agreement to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula was an end product of President Trump's bold and vigilant leadership on behalf of the American people. It it goes on to attack the, um, the political class in Washington uh, and that wow. it's like citing the historic tax cuts that have nothing to do with any of this and claiming there's been unprecedented economic growth, which, of course, is not true. Um, but they just see this as a way to pump up the president's brand. That may be, but people don't really associate you're, you're in Ohio. What is happening with the president in Singapore talking to the North Koreans with what Sherrod Brown is doing on trade, that there, there's right. just there's not this direct line um, between what lawmakers are doing, trying to fight Republican lawmakers fighting for survival, Democratic lawmakers who are largely running against um, the president, and what the president is actually doing in his job as uh, as chief of foreign policy for the United States. A lot of the anger that helped the president win. Um, anger, frustration, disillusionment, whatever we want to call it, that emotion um, was not necessarily about foreign policy. It's about they did not feel they were getting a fair shake. And at no point did uh, a steel mill in Youngstown shut down because North Korea was developing missiles. Nor did it open up when they said that they would denuclearize either. Exactly. I mean, these, these are all about what yeah. what have you done for me lately? Yeah. And this this is great pageantry and great symbolism on the foreign stage. But you're looking at this, and you, at the same time, the president is seeming intent on starting a trade war on with 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 you know with with Mexico, with Canada, with England, with the EU broadly. Like you know, the number one trading partner for the state of Ohio is Canada, and. We're, we're trying to start a trade war with Canada, even though the United States has a trade surplus with Canada. The, it's not a home and hearth issue. Uh, yes. Any way that you can construe it. So so let's dig deeper into that. And you mentioned earlier, and I know as a journalist, uh, you've got antenna up for anything that is uh, verbal or has to do with language. Last night, as we watched the president, he, you, as you said, he said it was an honor to be there with the North Korean leader. Uh, he is a great leader. Uh, we're going to have a terrific ongoing 
relationship. Now, to everybody else, this is the most brutal dictator in the world, uh, arguably, and, and certainly one of the top three. Uh, then, at the same time, on Sunday, you have Peter, Peter Navarro, the Canadian prime minister, saying to Justin Trudeau that there should be a special place in hell for a world leader who double-crosses President Donald Trump. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the quote was amazing. And you have the president trying to demean Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, calling him meek and weak and um, using all of these disparaging terms. That language juxtaposition to me is astounding. It is, and it should be. Um, he, Peter Navarro is an interesting guy. He, he's one of the president's economic advisors. He's not the only one, but he does date from the campaign. So that gives him some extra cachet in the Trump orbit. He really has pushed this idea that trade is bad um, unless America is superior in it. That trade deals are inherently put the United States at a disadvantage. He, he likes the idea of a trade war. He thinks trade wars are fun. Um, Peter Navarro is also one of the most colorful people uh, in the White House in terms of language. As such, he doesn't have one he doesn't have free reign over trade policy. He is one component of the president's economic team. But no one doubts that when the president when Peter is speaking, on behalf of the White House, that he's really conveying the thoughts uh, of the president. That that is one of that is one of his strongest um, traits. Is that when Peter speaks, you might as well assume the president saying it, or the president has said it, or the president will say it. That he does have a great amount of influence on, on the president on a personal level. Organizationally, um, there have been efforts to kind of box him into his space and keep him there, so he doesn't. Uh, wind up roaming through government, reshaping everything. That said, the and I hadn't realized this until I spoke to a former Obama administration official, in terms of temperament and symbolism and generational change, Justin Trudeau represents the perhaps the closest thing we have to Barack Obama on the world stage right now. One can easily argue Emmanuel Macron in France is that, but let's just stick with uh, Trudeau as the heir of Obama. Right. That anything that is Obama-esque in President Trump's mind is to be disrespected. That is weak, feckless, flim-flam, all, all hype, no substance. Um, it really makes you wonder if the president has, if President Trump had looked at the prime minister's CV. Uh, realized he is from a very prominent political family uh, in Canada, has the has has really worked to build a coalition in Canada that represents Canadians. It, 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 the, the prime minister joked <laughs> that, well, we are polite, we are civilized, we're not easy, we're not easy to um, we're not going to be anger, walked but over. We're also yeah. we're not going to be pushed around, right? And in, in saying we're not going to be pushed around, that read to the president like a double cross. Like, what do you mean you're not going to be pushed around? I thought that was the whole point of you people being Canadian. And that really just really enraged the president, who had already gone into this summit, determined to troll the other foreign leaders as much as he could. It really was designed for him to articulate that the United States doesn't, in his mind, doesn't need the G7. I mean, on the way out the door from the White House, he says, really, we should go back to it being the G8. G8. Why isn't Russia yeah. here? It's like, well, Russia invaded a neighbor. Like, Crimea. Russia has not, generally, the G7 is a place for the responsible economic powers to be there. Russia never really fit in there. Their economy is not anywhere on par with any any of the other trading partners but it's a sign of like you know post cold war detente let's give them a seat let's it's better to have them at the table than invading a country well they invaded a country anyway um so that was the way they were walking in the president was late to everything at 
in 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 Canada as a sign of disrespect. Everyone noticed it at a at a summit for um, uh, gender equality and uh, women's issues. He he noticeably sauntered in well after everything was started. You could just see the irritation on the foreign leader's eyes. Like really, the man who won an election despite having bragged about sexually assaulting women is involved with a lawsuit against a porn star on a non-disclosure agreement, has all of these other accusations um, from women around him. He's going to show up late to a women's issues roundtable with other foreign leaders. And not show up at all at the environmental change uh, roundtable. Right. I mean, it, it really was a coordinated, packaged show of disrespect to... What what we would what we have long assumed um, are some of America's most durable allies, and that was just not acceptable. The one picture that sort of symbolized this to me, Phil, was that picture that I think the German media released of Andrea Merkel, uh, sort of glowering down at a sitting Trump, surrounded by all of these uh, other people, with his arm folded, with a petulant look on his face. I mean, it just reminded me of uh, parents and, and people surrounding a petulant child who, uh, you know, you're trying to get to admit to breaking the cookie jar and they're not going to say anything. I mean, it was it was great for what you described Trump was trying to convey. But, oh, my God, as far as diplomacy goes. Yeah, I mean, that's a paper that picture ran. I'm looking at it right now on a one of the Sunday New York Times that you've got him just looking dumbfounded, like, you're kidding me, right? You expect me to do anything? Abe is basically rolling his eyes. Uh, Macron basically has like, are you kidding me? Look on his face. Um, we uh, unfortunately can't see Prime Minister May. And Merkel is just looking at him with what appears to be utter disgust. It's interesting, though, that this this image was released by the German government. This is an official oh, Merkel see. photo. Okay, okay. I, uh, you, yeah. I and knew then, it was in German at, media, but I didn't know it was a German government. Yeah, it's their version of Pete Souza. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. Shot this. So yeah. it's an official yeah. German government photograph. You look at some of the other images, the Italians who have a new prime minister who wants to, uh, who needs to figure out how to read Trump. The Italian government released a different version of it where they, 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 each of them has a smirk on their face like they're sharing an inside joke. Um, the Americans tried to come up with an image that was less confrontational. Um, it, it's not much better, but at least shows that they're not, all, they're not staring each other down like if they're at the OK Corral. So just want to caution, yes, it's an incredible image and one that, from my reporting, sums up the entire tone of this meeting. But it is an official government photograph from the government of Germany that it's in, in, other, in other times we would consider this a piece of propaganda that was put out in the absence of any independent photography being able to be produced at this session where these people were. And this is where the argument, and I'm always, I will make this any chance I get to Team Trump, this is why you let the press in. So you yeah. have an independent assessment of what was said, what was done, and you have multiple multiple lenses through which to see this. That way you can't be boxed in by German propaganda. And I think we're going to see, because the North Koreans had their own propaganda team in these meetings, um, and we Americans had their free press. But at the working lunch, there was no independent journalism committed at the Kim Trump lunch. It was Singapore State TV that served as the pool for that lunch. So we have no idea what that what the the lasting impact of that on public diplomacy is going to be. That do, the, the, the free press is your friend, Team Trump. Do you feel that, uh, as some pundits do, that this was a twofer for uh, the Trump administration, all, as you said, certainly coordinated, but it was a twofer in the sense that they could thumb their nose at the established uh, allies, at the same time, the president could look a big, tough guy going into this meeting with Kim. Was it a twofer? I, I think that's that's accurate. It might also be a threefer 
in that he he proudly said he didn't need all of the prep session um, from the State Department analysts. He didn't need the briefing material. He said he would know in the first minute or so whether this was going to go well. He didn't need a lot of coaching. Um, and in the end, his national security advisor, John Bolton, um, has been very critical of the, the the regime in North Korea, was not really on board with all of this. Sat at, he was kept out of the meeting in the Oval Office with the former spy chief of uh, North Korea when the, he delivered that oversized invitation and letter for this vi- visit. Um, really, th- this is also a way for the president to say, hey, I- I've got this. Um, and, I mean, you-, you look at the State Department. We're now 16 months into this thing. There is no assistant secretary for intelligence. There's no undersecretary for public affairs. Uh, the undersecretary for public diplomacy has already quit on this. Um, there's no nominee for assistant secretary for political and military affairs. There's no assistant secretary for human rights. Like, these are really important jobs where you, you need someone who can do, who, who spends their 40 to 60 to 80 hours a week looking at one narrow, um, one narrow topic. Um, the, I, I had a chance to speak um, to Secretary Condi Rice a couple weeks ago, and she said the number one thing Secretary Pompeo needs to do is get your assistant secretaries in place. Those are your line officers. Those are your field generals. They're the ones who keep keep an eye on parts of the world when they're not on the front page of the New York Times or Fox News. They, they really are the ones who uh, keep American diplomacy going. We have a nominee for a secretary to South Korea or an ambassador to South Korea. But he's not confirmed yet. I mean, like they're, they're, we're just going blind on so many of these um, really important positions um, where that's where the legwork of diplomacy is done. One final point on that is that these positions are created by Congress. This is not just, hey, I think we, this should happen. The, the Congress, the, Congress created these assistant secretary positions. Um, they are Senate, many of them are Senate confirmed. The Congress wants people in charge of these portfolios. That ta- we, Congress will say, we will give you tax dollars to focus on this. We will give you staff to work under you. Is like an assistant secretary for Asian affairs isn't just there. He, that person, he or she has a whole team of specialists who last beyond administrations, who have the institutional knowledge, who can say, hey, there's this report coming out of Seoul. And someone will say, well, who's the, who's the reporter on it? And they will know who in, in South Korea media has what bias and whether that can be trusted. It's that level of um, tradecraft. Um, in diplomacy and in spycraft, you can do that at the CIA as well, um, that helps you make a better assessment. Just having the raw intelligence make its way to the president every morning um, is not a, way to, not a way to extract the best actions. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. 
Let's stay with foreign policy a moment and, and talk about some of the players who are in place now. You saw the optics at the at that conference table uh, last night. Uh, there was uh, Bolton there. There was Pompeo there. There was General Kelly there, and and the president there. You know the the wild card in all of this to me. Uh, Phil, and and you have great insight on these topics, is uh, General Mathis. Uh, some people thought when Bolton and Pompeo came on, Mathis would jettison and, and, and leave. That's not been the case. Can you explain that trio a bit? Yeah, I mean, Mathis is one of the most respected figures in um, American uh, national security establishment. He, I mean, he's legit... An, an American patriot. And time and again, he has been so frustrated, he's been ready to quit. And he talks to his brain trust in uniform and outside. Um, and he's like, I'm th- I, I've had it. I, this is just ridiculous. I can't keep doing this. And I'm like, well, do you know what comes next? That you really have, as, as a patriot, you have a duty to stay there and be one of the last checks um, on this president. I mean that that is kind of considered when during the president's first rough go, when everyone looked at the first national security advisor Michael Flynn, um, Reince Priebus's chief of staff, who's a political guy, not a foreign policy guy, and they kind of looked at um, Mattis, Rex Tillerson at the State Department at the time, and John Kelly, who was then at DHS, as the the like the bumpers on this bowling alley. That if we could just keep them in a lane. This might not be so bad. Well, Tillerson was fired by tweet. Right. Mattis is not there in, in in Singapore with them. Kelly is now the chief of staff, but is telling people um, very openly that he hates his job and is looking to leave. He's now been there coming up on one year, which was his test to himself, that could he survive um, one full year as Donald Trump's chief of staff? Um, he's still in the job. I don't know that he's actually, um, exerting as much influence as he had hoped, but he is trying every day just to manage, um, a situation where the president is annoyed with him, thinks that he's taking all the fun out of being president, um, is insisting he actually keep a schedule, um, that matches the needs of the country. Um, Kelly has made it possible for the president, like the president doesn't get to the Oval Office till about 11 o'clock every morning, that he spends most of his morning upstairs watching cable news. And, you know, that might be the, the easiest way to manage the president's um, uh, moods, impulses, like get it out of your system, watch all the cable news as you want. But during the hours of 11 and 4, you got to stay focused and keep the, keep, keep the remote in the desk drawer. Um, we're, we're all waiting to see if Kelly um, makes an exit sometime this summer. That is widely expected. The question is who comes next? Kelly's most trusted um, ally in the cabinet, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Nielsen. She is on the outs with the president, so I can't right. see her coming in to replace. Somehow the president didn't realize that she had worked for George W. Bush. And that is a disqualifier um, in his mind for a lot of these staffers. Um, and Mattis is just sitting there kind of flabbergasted that this is just hours before the summit started. He, he had told, um, told officials that there is no way we're going to walk away from our commitments to South Korean protection, that that is an enduring part of foreign policy as long as we are still at war with the North. Because um, the United States is still... Involved in a hot war, the Korean War has not ended. Right. We have an armistice, but not a treaty. Um, and then just hours later, the president uh, commit, saying, we spend too much money on war games, as he calls them, in um, South Korea, uh, with the South Korean military. And everyone is just looking around like, like did, did he bother to read the memo from his defense secretary? Does he realize that this isn't just sitting on a sitting in a room playing a game of risk. This is legitimately training people for what would happen if the full uh, rage of the North Koreans 
came hurtling across the border um, in, with an army that really has no respect for its own membership, let alone the population it's firing on. That this is this is a very real and unsafe and unstable place. What what happens then? And we're not really sure that um, Mattis, Secretary Mattis, had gotten through um, to the president on this one. So but then, if he leaves, who comes next? Then, yeah, exactly, exactly. This this is this is. You talk to my, my friends in presidential personnel. Who they're basically the HR office right. for um, the, the presidency. Right. Well, the White House and the agencies they farm out there. It, it's some of its patronage jobs, some of its um, high skilled, high um, senior government executives. Right. Um, but it, it's it's the front door through which you go if you want one of these great jobs. And it's not like they're turning qualified people away. That it is. It feels somewhat like the sixth or seventh year of administration, when the the really um, the sexy part of the administration is over. You're kind of wrapping things up, working on legacy. People are going to go start working on the campaigns for the next president presidential campaign. You're burned out. Um, you get the B or the C team in yeah. year seven or eight, and you can still get great things done. Um, I'm thinking of Bill Clinton uh, sending Madeleine Albright to North Korea. Uh, I'm thinking of George W. Bush getting the Iraq war um, back on solid footing, confronting an economic crisis that he didn't sign up for. No one on his economic team signed up for. They thought they were on a glide path to the exit. Um, Barack Obama, obviously, with the Iran deal and Cuba, uh, we're still trying to figure out what that means in terms of legacy and diplomatic endurance. But you can do great things with the B or C team. But when you get the B or the C team in year two, that that's really that does not bode well for what might be year seven or eight of the Trump administration. Well, let's talk Mueller. We haven't talked to the Russia investigation. It wouldn't be a discussion with you without doing that. I know you were part of a story at the time. Uh, did about uh, the impact of the public discrediting of Mueller, the attacks by Rudy Giuliani and, and Devin Nunez and others. You've got a prosecutor who cannot speak, will not speak, uh, is taking no counteraction. You have a White House and an outside counsel and a Congress uh, that is trying to pl try the court in public opinion, uh, and you've got Democrats sitting on their hands. Um, talk about that whole situation and what you found out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting piece. It's, it's titled The War on Mueller because um, it really is a public relations assault on the special prosecutor and those around him that the president and the echo chamber of conservative media, conservative congressmen, um, more than happy to provide the president cover on this and fuel these conspiracy theories that if you watch uh, certain shows on Fox News and they put up this br this giant crime board, as they call it, and all the things right. um, that, they, that are alleged to have been shady. And to be clear... There are a lot of unanswered questions about certain individuals' actions and what they did and when they did it. And a lot of it has been um, – a lot of it is a lot less sexy or nefarious than initially purported. But it's still not – nothing about this is normal. So we have to keep that in mind. What, what we're seeing from the White House, especially um, Rudy Giuliani – it is the very open and ready admission that this is not really a fight that is going to be won um, in a court. This is going to be won in public opinion. And Giuliani to, told us on the record, um, and this is the quote, the Congress is going to be driven by a large extent by public opinion. That Congress will not, if, if the approval rating or confidence of Mueller falls below a certain threshold, Congress will be afraid. 
Congress will act in its own self-interest and give the people what the people believe to be true, even if it's not. And that might let the president get, um, if the president were to be found um, participating in activities that are problematic and threatened his, and threatened his presidency, uh, he may get away with it because Congress will be too afraid to act and the public will think that it's wrong for Congress to hold him accountable. That you, you see the public opinion polling, confidence that Mueller is doing things by the book or that there is any sort of um, – most of the public doesn't realize that there have been indictments and guilty pleas in this. That that is where the American people – this is not breaking through. Well, the only thing they're hearing is that this is a witch hunt, and the president just keeps saying this is a witch hunt. Sean Hannity keeps saying um, this makes Watergate look like um, – uh, someone stole a Snickers bar or something, um, and that, when he's talking about the Mueller mis- misbehavior, um, that it's really a dangerous place um, for our democracy to be, and there are far-reaching consequences of this. In, in a cover we did a few months ago, um, one of our um, contributors, Eric Lickbau, looked at the declining faith in the judicial branch. And what that has meant for criminal convictions, that there is so much less confidence in the judicial system, prosecutors and police, because everyone keeps trying to undercut them, that actually now it's more difficult to get a conviction, even when it's clear cut that this had happened. It's just that we are losing faith in our institutions so quickly, um, so rapidly, so perhaps permanently, that... When, when these these cornerstones of American democracy start falling apart, there are real consequences. And it's not it, it extends far beyond whether um, the president perhaps lied in a deposition years ago or – I mean there, there's just the fundamental refusal right. to understand facts as we know them. Everyone – like we, we forget Donald Trump Jr. released his own emails admitting to taking a meeting – with an attorney for the Russian gov- with ties to the Russian government to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, he doesn't deny this. He tweeted out the email himself rather than be, um, rather than comment on it when the New York Times got a hold of it. And still, people are like, "Oh no, he ne- there was the Russians never met with anyone at Trump Tower." It's like, here's literally the email confirming it happened and the after action memo, and no one cares. If you can't even agree on basic facts, how are we going to solve the big problems like Social Security? Medicare, Medicaid, healthcare, criminal justice reform, trade disputes. I mean, they're really big questions, but if you can't even agree on the basic facts, how do you reach the next conclusion? And that is that is the danger that we're seeing uh, in this president trying to discredit all of these uh, institutions that might not be yes-men for him. Well... If we haven't talked enough inside baseball, I always go to you with who's coming, who's going, who's leaving, who's threatening to leave, <laughs> the, the, the potpourri of, of White House intrigue. But I want to I start off with asking you the question that's been bugging me. Where's Hope Hicks? Hope Hicks was the White House communications director. She left in February. We don't have a White House communications director right now. It is June. The White House has had no one running point on communications. And one, one might say it has shown. Um, Hope Hicks, last, last, I, last I knew, Hope was spending time with her family uh, in, in Connecticut. Uh, the RNC is paying uh, something like $400,000 to the law firm who is representing Hope. All of that might not be for Hope, but that's a lot of money. Um, and we, we know that that law firm is representing hope. Um, it's taking a break is not a bad thing for hope. The expectation among the president's, uh, circle of friends is that hope will be back at some point, um, in a role far greater than, uh, the communications director job, which is not a bad job by any stretch. Um, a lot of white house staff who didn't always see eye to eye with her, um, would love to see her back if for no other reason than she controls uh, the president's moods. 
she absorbs a lot of his ire, lets it dissipate, and then no one else has to take that ire. Now the president's going directly to Twitter. Um, the White House communications office at the moment is a, a, a den of snakes. They are all attacking each other, leaking against each other. I, it's hard for me to imagine a, a communications office that is doing less to advance the president's message at this moment, that they're constantly fighting and battling with each other. The, the, a person who studies this made the point that we're basically – the best analogy is Bill Clinton's first term right. when you had a press oh, secretary yeah. who didn't brief – you had a senior advisor to the president who was at the podium every day, and everyone was fighting each other because it was the Arkansas team versus the Washington team, and no one got on the same page. That was like 93, 94. Um, those people sorted it out, all out, and they all left. Um, but even then, they were all still trying to push Bill Clinton's agenda. Now you've got communication staffers confronting other communication staffers in front of the president, accusing each other of lying, people losing their jobs, not because they said very bad things about people that got out, but they lost their job because they called out someone else for leaking about what they had said. <laughs> that there, there's, there's just this bizarre circular logic of like, you, you have to be kidding me with this. Uh, I'm thinking of, for instance, of young Miss Sadler, uh, a communications aide in the West. Right. Side who had during a meeting said, what does it matter what John McCain has to say about our CIA director? He's a, he's going to be dead anyway, pretty soon. Completely inappropriate, completely um, out of line for any staffer to say, of course it leaked immediately. Um, Kelly Sadler um, was confronted about this. Um, and, it, and the president not really taking offense to John McCain, who is in poor health, in Arizona, rather than scolding her, he asked her, okay, who do you think leaked it? She pointed a finger at her boss. Her boss took retaliation and fired her for it. And then we, we now know that she's in the mix for another administration job, just not working for her boss, who, who if this young woman is to be believed, leaked that wow. damaging comment in the first place, wow. that there, there are no consequences for anything here, that it, it, it's all about... Um, the optics of it and not the content. But that is how the president runs this administration. He thinks the power of storytelling, the power of imagery, the power of symbolism trumps anything you could find in uh, footnotes. I mean, keeping in mind, like the, the, the Trump's Iran nuclear data, deal. Trump's, Trump's data, Trump's facts. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at some of the, the analogous um, situation in the Obama administration was the nuclear deal with Iran. And you had literally a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist as the energy secretary who was doing the calculations with the team from the energy department trying to figure out just would a centrifuge of that size be able to, to, pro to provide enough nuclear energy to do this. And Trump instead is trying to figure out whether they're going to have play golf at Mar-a-Lago or Kim is going to come to the White House. Right. Like it, it is that level of just superficial – uh, public facing detail and everything else is for suckers. And it, it may, who knows, it may work. Ronald Reagan famously didn't care about the details about any of this. And history has judged um, his stewardship of America at the end of the cold war pretty well. I mean, it, really the presidency bends to whoever is in the office. The person d seldom bends to the presidency itself. Um, and we, we were just watching this president tests the limits of presidential elasticity, that just how much can he shoehorn presidential power into his persona, his personality? Well, Phil, as always, fascinating to talk with you. You have one of the best jobs ever, I think. <laughs> uh, you're, you're right there on the front lines. And keep up the good work on MSNBC. We enjoy seeing you there. Of course. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it, Phil. Thank you. Be well. Today, we've been talking with Washington correspondent for Time, Philip Elliott, for a behind-the-scenes update on the Trump administration and its many fronts of controversy.
Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum is also available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments about any of our podcasts, you can send them to me via email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.